The withdrawal from Afghanistan, expectedly for some and apparently surprisingly for many others, has come alongside increased chaos and violence as the U.S.-backed Kabul regime crumbles in the face of Taliban advances to take control of the country. And the process of evacuating U.S. personnel and Afghan refugees has received a lot of criticism for being cumbersome and unprepared. To talk about this and other things, my guest today is Benjamin Friedman, Policy Director at Defense Priorities and my former Cato FP colleague. Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Good to talk to you. So amid all the tug and pull, it seems like the spectrum of opinion goes from this withdrawal was poorly managed, but getting out was the right decision, to this withdrawal proves that we should have prolonged a 20-year war because it was sustainable. Um, how do you assess the withdrawal and its broader significance? Well, obviously, there was a bombing that killed 13 Marines and a large number of Afghans, and, and then a uh, U.S. drone strike in response to that ISIS bombing that reportedly killed uh, an, innocent, an innocent family of people. So that's a pretty big uh, caveat to what I'm about to say. That's horrible and tragic. But I think with that very important exception, uh, the withdrawal has gone shockingly well, shockingly uh, compared to where it seemed things were uh, roughly two weeks ago when the Taliban uh, rolled into Kabul and uh, there was broad consternation uh, there, certainly, but here also in a way that uh, the Taliban would immediately round up, uh, if not Americans, then all the uh, former employees of the Americans, the translators, uh, the, the other people who had helped the U.S. war effort and either uh, throw them in uh, prison or potentially kill them. And now uh, the United States has uh, evacuated, uh, I don't know, 120,000 people, something like that, uh, including every American who wants to leave. Uh, there are a few still there who didn't want to leave, uh, a couple hundred, I believe. Uh, and, you know, I think that's a pretty big success under the circumstances uh, that, you know, that doesn't mean there's nothing to complain about. But uh, I just think it's important to keep in mind kind of where we were, where people thought, you know, the Taliban are going to have all these hostages and uh, kill all these people. And that hasn't happened. And, and part of it is the success of the, you know, the logistical capability of the U.S. military and moving that many people as chaotic as it was outside the airport. But. A lot of it is also that the Taliban cooperated for the most part. I mean, not all the militia members were on the same page and it was chaotic for people getting to the airport. And a lot of people who wanted to leave who are Afghans still haven't been able to, uh, although the Taliban say they still can uh, through commercial flights. But, um, it, you know, it, 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 uh, the Taliban cooperated with the U.S. and let people leave. I guess it was in their interest to do so, and they want to put on a good face and not seem like the brutalistic, uh, murderous thugs that they were in the 90s. And so far, that's manifested itself, at least in, for the most part, letting people leave who want to leave. At least uh, that, that's what uh, it appear, appears to be the case. Uh, you know, maybe there's some people who are thrown in uh, cells that we don't know about, but thus far, it's, it's been okay. So with the big exception of the bombing and the drone strike, which was kind of a sad coda to the war in that, you know, that it's kind of typical that we've been doing drone strikes for a long time and killing the wrong people in Afghanistan. And that's part of the reason the war is tragic. With that important exception, I think it went okay. That said, do you think that 
there were some things that the Biden administration could have done a little earlier on, on refugees and evacuations. It seems like they got started a little too late after it became clear because of events that the Taliban was uh, taking control of the country and the U.S.-backed regime was kind of faltering. Yeah, I mean, I think there are two big things that I would identify as mistakes. One is the uh, backlog in the issuing of uh, the special immigrant visas that uh, a lot of Afghans were owed, and the you know, the I think something like fifteen thousand people in a backlog who were uh, owed visas and hadn't received them. I forget the exact number. Uh, you know, that's unacceptable. The, the Trump administration went out of its way to make it more difficult to get a visa for Afghans and everyone else who wanted to come to the United States. Uh, but the uh, Biden administration could have done more to throw resources at the problem and clear the backlog uh, before uh, the the Kabul fell. And then the other big thing is just the, the intelligence uh, or uh, error in uh, not anticipating that the Afghan army would crumble so fast, which, you know, I find pretty understandable because it was my own view that they would at least fight for a little bit and not just all essentially, with, with the exception of some Afghan forces, cut deals with the Taliban and allow them to essentially roll across Afghanistan as fast as they could gather uh, surrender deals. So the Biden administration clearly didn't anticipate that and they were back on their heels you know, to what extent they should have, to what extent they were victims of uh, our own propaganda about the capability of the Afghan military forces, even after, you know, the exposure of how false a lot of that was in the uh, Special Inspector General reports and the uh, Afghan papers that the Washington Post published. I don't know. But, uh, you know, I think those are the two big failures, not anticipating the speed of the collapse and not processing visas fast enough, not a lot of the stuff that more nebulous complaints that people make. I, I don't think, for example, that keeping Bagram Air Base open would have helped that much. Uh, I mean, it's possible, it's something to debate, but uh, I think, you know, a lot of people seem to think uh, that there was a kind of a, a perfect uh, clean exit available. Uh, that you could kind of stick the landing of a disastrous war. And I think a lot of the problems uh, in in uh, Afghanistan are, are manifest uh, in in our attempt to exit that you know are, were problems of the war like the fact that of such a large number of Afghans wanted to leave and were so desperate to get out of the country that they would flood the airport and even some you know originally cling to the bottom of an airplane uh, and fall to their deaths is is not it's it shows what a terrible situation Afghanistan is in. And, and that's not the fault of the U.S. exit uh, from the war. It's the fault of uh, Afghanistan's inherent problems and the fact that we've been exacerbating a civil war for so long. So the, the sad, ironic truth to me is that uh, Afghanistan is now closer to peace than it's been uh, probably since uh, right after the Taliban fell in 2001. And, and possibly 2002, and possibly since uh, the 1970s, uh, before the Soviet invasion, before the series of coups took place that destabilized the place seemingly permanently. So um, I don't know if the Taliban will be able to consolidate rule. And obviously, the way 
they'll run the country, even if they're new and improved, uh, is illiberal and upsetting to people like me who hold uh, liberal values. But there's something to be said for peace and uh, if they can achieve it. And uh, it will be beneficial to a lot of Afghans if they can live in a country that's not torn apart by civil war. So the kind of ultimate irony of the war is, is that we are leaving the country at peace, not because we won, but because we lost uh, so thoroughly that the side we backed just collapsed. One thing I've noticed is the news media's handling of all of this. The coverage, you know, both straight news and commentary has been, I think, decidedly hawkish. You had Brett Stevens and Corey Shockey in the New York Times and Bob Kagan and John Bolton in the Washington Post. And, you know, I saw MSNBC's Andrea Mitchell framing this withdrawal as a catastrophe. And on the one hand, I think there has indeed been some progress. I think there are more anti-war and restraint-oriented voices on TV and on the editorial pages than there used to be. But on the other hand, you have to wonder why somebody feels it's necessary to infuse the public debate with exactly the elite voices that have been fantastically wrong about pretty much every major post 9-11 policy, uh, from elective wars and the threat of terrorism to, you know, the wisdom and effectiveness of nation building missions to counterinsurgency campaigns, you name it. How do you think about the elite policy and media discussions on this? Well, to start with, it just makes me really angry. Uh, you know, it makes me angry that the, the op-ed pages and the, uh, talk shows on Sunday uh, are so stuck in not, not just the ideas, the kind of hubristic ideas that, you know, fueled the uh, post 9-11 panic, I would say it was a panic, and uh, this sort of crusading mentality that hasn't entirely gone away. I mean, last weekend, we had Paul Wolfowitz uh, in the Wall Street Journal, we had uh, Kagan in the Washington Post with the three-page spread saying how, uh, you know, the war on terror was actually a success because he has this incredibly overrated view of terrorists uh, that, that makes it seem like uh, the fact that they didn't set off a nuclear bomb in the United States by now is a success. We had, uh, you know, Brad Stevens, Corey Shockey, as you said, all these people who are uh, basically lamenting uh, not the war's failure, but its end. And uh, that's, on the one hand, uh, disgusting, but I mean, those people really mean it. And the, the media uh, gatekeepers who choose, you know, who pick them to write up ads and who put H.R. McMaster repeatedly on television so he can falsely claim or suggest that the, the bombing outside the airport was done at the behest of the Taliban by ISIS, which is basically misinformation that then people like Andrea Mitchell are repeating. I mean, you know, it's it's a choice they're making, and, and uh, partly it, it's sensible in that these people are prominent, uh, especially people like the master, former national security advisor, John Bolton, former national security advisor, former this, former that, for Bush and Trump. But uh, it's the, the kind of lack of pushback live on the air when McMaster says something like that, that the people interviewing him, Anderson Cooper or whomever, just sort of sagely nod and uh, move on. You know, the CNN or uh, other major news channels should have a reporter on hand who's capable of saying, wait, what are you talking about? Or they should have another guest who says that. Uh, 
Uh, and, uh, you know, the op-ed pages, as you say, have improved a bit. You have people like Peter Beinart and Ezra Klein now at the New York Times who are uh, solidly uh, in opposition to this kind of general hawkish uh, worldview that dominates, but that it's still dominant. And, and uh, I think it's it just shows uh, how kind of deeply ingrained the uh, idea that the United States has to kind of dominate militarily uh, in all circumstances for us to be safe uh, has become and uh, how difficult it is to kind of uh, reset, you know, people's thinking and uh, switch our kind of uh, ideology as a country away from this self-defeating uh, overwrought strategy or, you know, uh, ideology of U.S. hegemony. So, you know, it's kind of a long fight where I guess, people like us are making progress, it would appear, but it's frustrating how slow it is and how few of the people who are gatekeepers of big media institutions uh, are to, to change their choices and who they promote. I view it as troubling given what it might mean for the future, because I think political actors are watching this very closely. And it seems to me the lesson has once again been relearned that ending wars even ones for which there's no serious strategic interest and that we lost a long time ago, will come with major political costs. And those political costs reliably disincentivize drawing down wars. And in some sense, that's what needs to actually change in order for there to be a substantive policy correction, don't you think? I mean, if a president who ran on withdrawing gets this much flack for doing something that he not only promised to do, but that the public overwhelmingly supports, it seems to me it doesn't bode well for encouraging politicians in either party to continue the effort to draw down America's post 9-11 militarism. Yeah, that's true. Uh, although what I would say is that uh, I think the jury is still out in terms of the political effects of uh, the United States finally leaving the war in Afghanistan. Uh, you know, Biden being the third president after Obama and Trump and said they were going to end the war and the first one to actually do it. I, you know, I think it, it is popular. Uh, the, the popularity of leaving seems to have taken a little hit uh, with all the negative press about the uh, the exit and the you know the messiness, the suicide bombing, and the people hanging off the airplane. Uh, and I, I, I suppose that's natural. But the, I think the question is, will it uh, just be a blip uh, in the overall popularity of leaving? It's been popular. You know, it's been a, a majority of Americans have wanted to get out of Afghanistan for a long time, maybe a decade. Uh, so, uh, I think it's possible that Biden might in the end feel that he was rewarded, uh, politically for leaving and that the squawking of the kind of Beltway insider, uh, class, uh, the people who were for the war, who, you know, were for the war, uh, in Iraq, who were typically for four or five wars at once, uh, is just noise. And he is hopefully able to dismiss it the same way Obama in his, kind of exit interview with Jeffrey Goldberg of The Atlantic, a publication, by the way, that has been running almost entirely pro-war uh, op-eds and so forth. Uh, the same way Obama, you know, had a sort of dismissive view of the Beltway insiders that Ben Rhodes called the blob and, uh, you know, seemed in his eighth year in office to be able to kind of defy them, not in the prior seven, maybe. So hopefully Biden is there already. And uh, we'll see that this is just, you know, not not what real politics are made of, just a kind of loud insider conversation, elite media. Speaking of squawking, I want to ask about credibility. 
Among the reasons for people's dissatisfaction with the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan is this notion that it'll erode America's perceived resolve, undermine its reputation for sticking to its word and standing by allies. And from this perspective, withdrawing from Afghanistan will have geopolitical implications beyond Afghanistan itself, even well beyond the region. And this is one of those issues, and there are several like this, I think, where the scholarly literature seems to have rather thoroughly discredited the idea, uh, yet it continues to be routinely invoked in the D.C. discourse on foreign policy and frequently cited as a major reason to continue what otherwise look like um, costly and even dangerous commitments. Talk about the logic of this idea of credibility and where it comes from and what the rigorous work on it actually shows. Yeah, uh, I, I think that there are, are three big uh, arguments that are being made that are basically national security reasons for uh, staying in Afghanistan or for having stayed in Afghanistan. People who are mad the United States is leaving for security reasons, not some uh, concern about human rights or women woman's education. And, and credibility is one of them, along with terrorism and uh, some vaguer idea that China or Russia is going to take over Afghanistan and that will be bad. Uh, but credibility is it's an incredibly bad idea of a domino theory uh, that says uh, because the United States didn't fight uh, for its ally for 21 or 22 or 23 or 24, whatever years, instead of 20, uh, the doubt will show people around the world that we don't stand by our allies. The United States doesn't stand by its allies. And because uh, our national security in this thinking is tied to all our alliance commitments, uh, which are many, uh, that this is a very serious problem. And uh, we will see uh, a test or a series of tests coming from our adversaries, China and Taiwan, maybe Russia on the fringes of uh, Europe maybe Iran somehow, uh, because they see this lack of resolve or uh, credibility from the United States to serve its uh, security interests. And uh, that argument uh, was made, in a, to me, a startling array of places in the week after the Taliban took Kabul. It was in the uh, Gideon Rockman, uh, in, in the Financial Times. Uh, it was in uh, multiple two or three articles, news articles in the Washington Post. Uh, there was a news article that said there's a crisis, global crisis of credibility for the United States, a news article in the New York Times, uh, and then just an array of op-eds and things like that. And uh, the reason it's crazy to think that is not because uh, I think credibility doesn't matter at all, although that's uh, debatable, it may not matter at all, but because it would be bizarre and absurd to think that the United States' interests and commitment to places where we have lingering commitments through treaties are measured by what we do in Afghanistan. So uh, if we have strong interests to be in uh, defending Germany, for example, or Japan, uh, we could debate whether or not that's still true, but to the extent we have strong interests and we have capabilities to defend those interests, military forces that are available, uh, I think the, the allies and uh, whatever adversaries are threatening uh, will believe in the U.S. Uh, credibility to service uh, that 
alliance commitment. And that is the, the basic view of calculating credibility, which is an important book by Daryl Press on the subject. And I think Jonathan Mercer, who's a political scientist and a lot of other political science that, that basically says uh, credibility doesn't travel easily around the world. It doesn't ricochet around like a pinball where, you know, your failure to start a war, for example, because of uh, the Assad regime in Syria using chemical weapons in 2012 or 2013 doesn't matter to Russia's calculations about whether or not to go into Crimea as they did. So, you know, we still have this essentially conspiracy theory that says Putin went into uh, Crimea because Obama didn't stand up for the red line, despite a total lack of proof that it had anything to do with it. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a narcissistic way of thinking about global politics where, you know, U.S. Uh, perturbations in U.S. Uh, commitment to various allies just bounces around the world and causes disorder. So we have very little evidence historically of that. And I, I would just add that, you know, I had a discussion with some of the political scientists online on Twitter about this, where, you know, there are these dissenting political scientists who are in part game theorists and things like that. And, and they think, well, they say, well, reputation does matter. And they were offended by Max Fisher's article in the New York Times that basically quoted uh, uh, the work of Daryl Press and other Mercer and uh, other political scientists who say these arguments about credibility are ridiculous. And these other political scientists were essentially saying, well, that's not all political science, political science has to say. You know, we find situations where reputation does matter. And I asked a couple of these people, well, yeah, but do you disagree with the, the premise of the article? Uh, do you agree with the people that Fisher at all are criticizing who think who think that, you know, U.S. credibility is in grave doubt? And to a person, all, the, everyone said, "No, no, no. We don't. We don't think that's true. We we're, we don't. We don't think that uh, fighting in uh, not fighting in Afghanistan matters for NATO or Taiwan or Korea. That's crazy. Like political scientists disagree a little bit about exactly how reputation uh, and resolve work, but they they nobody thinks it works that way. That it's that easy to lose your resolve. And in fact, the general consensus, I think, of most people, and I think this follows from just common sense, is that we were overcommitted to Afghanistan. We have probably an excess of credibility to fight endlessly uh, for uh, allies that were failing, that were stealing our money, as the Afghan uh, you know, political leaders were in large quantities, and that were full of failure. And so being so committed to that failing endeavor for 20 years ought to prove to people that the United States is a little crazy about its commitments and will carry them out to an excessive degree. And leaving the war in Afghanistan, you know, will show that we have a few more forces available uh, for things that really matter, unlike the failing war in Afghanistan. And if a few U.S. allies uh, were somewhat foolishly, I think, to take the lesson that uh, – they could do more to deserve the protection they're getting from the United States, say like the Kurds in Syria, or if they were to say, I think this means the United States might eventually leave Syria or the Iraqi government were to say, I think, you know, this is evidence that the United States is not endlessly committed to these wars that it started after 9-11, including putting troops in Iraq and then putting them back in there under uh, Obama. Well, uh, I think that's okay. In fact, it's probably a good thing for those allies or whatever noun we want to use to describe them to realize. So it's a long way of saying the credibility argument is crazy. 
but to the extent we've affected our credibility by getting out of Afghanistan, we've probably helped it a little bit. So all that tracks with me, but I've also been kind of surprised to see reports with quotes from our European counterparts uh, kind of making a big stink. Some of them don't seem like much more than kind of thinly veiled political attacks on, on Biden, but what is their actual gripe? And are they sort of leaning into the credibility canard opportunistically? Yes, they're leaning into the credibility canard opportunistically. I mean, uh, the, the article, for example, that Steve Erlinger wrote in the New York Times, you know, quotes a bunch of British MPs and uh, a few other people uh, saying, you know, oh, U.S. leadership is really uh, in abeyance here. You know, we, it's it's uh, we we thought America was back, but really they're going home. And I, I think that not all European leaders are saying this, but those that do, who especially seem to be British, right? Uh, the British seem to have uh, be having some kind of weird post-imperial panic about losing their kind of allied empire that they have a small part in uh, helping with that the United States had or something like that, especially on the Tory right. There's something very strange and uh, upsetting going on. Uh, but, you know, the people who say that, I think, uh, the, you know, their motives are, number one, it's always good to tell the United States uh, to the extent it's defending you, as, as we are with all our European allies, uh, it's always good to tell the United States that you're worried about their commitment to help you. How could that possibly be bad if you're relying on U.S. defense? So it's kind of a way of just sort of shaking the money tree a little bit and uh, telling the United States, you know, prove to us that you're really committed to us again do a little more, be even more back than Biden said uh, you were, something like that. Uh, but then, you know, besides that, I think it's just, there's a desire among some European leaders for the United States to fight wars and American taxpayers to pay for them, which Europeans have largely, not entirely, but largely checked out of, uh, because they correctly believe that they're not worthwhile. And, uh, you know, I think that really ought to irritate and piss people off in the United States that we have European leaders. And I don't think we're not talking about the European public. I don't think this is like a popular view in Germany or France, but uh, European leaders saying, oh, yeah, the United States is making a terrible mistake getting out of Afghanistan for this, that or the other reason. And uh, we're terribly upset by it. I mean, I think this is a time when the right response is you guys should go have the war in Afghanistan that you wish that we would. If that means developing more capability militarily, God bless you, go for it. Uh, develop greater strategic autonomy as Europe so that uh, you can continue wars that we quit after 20 years if you think it's a good idea. But cynically, I think a, a fair amount of this is just basically uh, they're worried about refugee flows uh, into Europe and uh, they want the United States kind of holding the dam and preventing larger refugee flows, and they're upset about it and saying silly things in the media uh, to complain. And uh, I think, you know, we should be irritated by that and say so, not just kind of worship allies is the, is the tendency for a lot of people uh, in D.C. A lot of media, as a side point, you know, seem to be very skeptical, correctly skeptical about stuff that U.S. politicians say because they're politicians and they usually have ulterior motives or motives that aren't entirely clear from their statement. Uh, but when it comes to, there's a certain kind of article that quotes German ministers and British Tory MPs as if everything they say is, you know, gospel truth and not remotely tinged with politics. So that's kind of disappointing. 
There seems to be a debate right now about whether or not to recognize the Taliban. Um, that can seem a little weird given that we worked with them and coordinated with them to evacuate um, and that they uh, seem to be on the verge of uh, dominating the country and just in terms of controlling most of the territory. Do you have thoughts on this? Everything that the United States wants to do in Afghanistan, whether or not it's helping people uh, have a decent life, whether or not it's you know uh, trying to ensure that in the urban areas of Afghanistan where women's rights were improved under the government that we installed or helped install after the Taliban fell, uh, women's uh, education continues, uh, and, and whether or not it's counterterrorism operations, everything we want to do in Afghanistan starts with cooperating with the Taliban. They are the government of Afghanistan now. They're forming the government of Afghanistan. So it may be that some of the elements of the uh, government that fell are still there. and We can have uh, CIA relationships with some of those people. But the bottom line is we have to work with the Taliban if we want to accomplish anything in uh, Afghanistan. And uh, the fact that the Taliban have been at war for a couple of years uh, or more with ISIS-K, the terrorist group that did the bombing uh, outside the airport last week, uh, is good news in the sense that it means we can continue to help the Taliban uh, should they need it uh, to go after ISIS-K. We don't have to invade the country or do bombings that uh, the Taliban uh try to stop to go after ISIS-K, we can cooperate with them. And I think the sad fact that we killed a bunch of people in Kabul, it appears, who were innocent in an attempt to go after ISIS-K uh, last week is uh, uh, emblematic of the fact that it's good to have local people who are helping you. Ideally, you could call the Taliban up and they could arrest someone uh, uh, who's in ISIS-K rather than just sending a drone into the middle of Kabul a drone strike, a Hellfire missile. So um, I think that that reality is uh, hard for a lot of people to take because, uh, you know, we've been told for two decades, uh, at least most of the time until recently, that the Taliban was uh, sort of the same thing as Al-Qaeda, uh, that they're uh, not just Islamists, but dangerous jihadists, who are the enemy of the United States. And it's, I think it's a little bit disorienting for a lot of people to hear that we need to work with them. But that that is the reality. And the fact is we have been working with them. Wesley Morgan had an article uh, back in, I think, October 2020, pointing out that the United States had done air support for the Taliban against ISIS uh, in a couple fights they had in eastern Afghanistan. So we have to continue working with the Taliban. We cut a deal with the Taliban, of course, in the Doha agreement. And contrary to what I'm reading over and over again, it's not clear to me that the Taliban violated that deal. It's clear to me the United States did by overstaying the deadline, which was May. Uh, but the Taliban said uh, that they would uh, negotiate with the Afghan government. They did that. The negotiations didn't go anywhere. And they said they would suppress al-Qaeda. Contrary to a lot of stuff I'm reading, it's not clear that they violated that. It's, it's, you know, there's a couple hundred Al-Qaeda-esque people left in Afghanistan. I'm not sure what the meaning of Al-Qaeda is anymore uh, in the way it's used in, in U, this UN report that everyone cites and stuff. I don't think there's a functioning Al-Qaeda organization anymore. Uh, but to the extent there is, the Taliban have a very strong incentive 
to go after it because they want to survive and not be thrown out of power or potentially bombed by the United States. And it seems to me they're rational uh, and that they've been behaving rationally. And that's why uh, they were successful in this war and have now taken power in Afghanistan. And so I think they'll probably continue to be rational and and, uh, suppress al-Qaeda along with going after ISIS. Uh, But if they don't, we're not bereft of ways to go after it. So um, whether or not the United States actually recognizes uh, the Taliban government of Afghanistan, I think we probably should. I think we should reopen the embassy of, as the Taliban have apparently requested we do. Uh, and whether or not we release funds uh, that were the Afghan government for the Taliban to use, I think we, one way or the other, we had to work with the Taliban. And one thing we definitely shouldn't do is declare, as Lindsey Graham said we should, that the remaining opposition to the Taliban in the Panjshir Valley are uh, the legitimate government of Afghanistan and give them aid, sort of like what we attempted to do in Venezuela with uh, the Guaido would-be government. I, I think if, if we pretend uh, that the opposition, which is might be negotiated into non-existence pretty soon, is the government of Afghanistan, we risk making the Taliban into the monsters that we fear they will be because it's insecure threatened regimes that tend historically to be the most threatening to their people to commit uh, crimes against, uh, you know, humanitarian values, norms, uh, and to even sponsor terrorists. Uh, So uh, I don't know under any circumstances that the Taliban would sponsor terrorists, but, you know, it seems substantially more likely if we start trying to overthrow them. So I think this is part of the acceptance process that people need to go through quickly is stop trying to overthrow the Taliban, accept that they're the government and work with them because you'll get better results, even from a humanitarian standpoint, if you accept that they're the government instead of trying to you know, s- sanction them into submission like we're still doing in Syria and so forth. In the months leading up to this withdrawal, I kept seeing news reports about how the Biden administration was working on getting access to new bases in neighboring Central Asian countries and preparing to watch Afghanistan closely and potentially continue to bomb it regularly from uh, outside the country. And now I'm seeing uh, increasing reports about an ongoing CIA mission, which is kind of assumed to be uh, somewhat reduced from when we were occupying the country, but um, it's sort of taken for granted that that CIA mission there will continue. And so I think this is kind of indicative of a feature that has uh, applied to a lot of post 9-11 foreign policies where there's a kind of tip of the iceberg that the public knows about and a ground war is a good way to get their attention. But then a lot of stuff happens well below the radar, whether it's drone strikes that nobody pays attention to, like Biden bombed Somalia a couple times in recent weeks, you know, small footprint um, sort of special operations forces and raids um, and uh, intelligence work. I mean, I guess my question is, do you think the the kind of war, such as it is, will continue after all of this in Afghanistan? Yeah, I, th- I think it's likely that there'll be some continued uh, counterterrorism operation, which means acts of war, unfortunately, uh, whether or not that's done through uh, CIA personnel. I don't know where we're going to house them if we don't have an embassy, but uh, you know they could probably find a way. Uh, or uh, just through the odd uh, drone strike like we had uh, with this uh, strike just a few days ago. 
you know, I think that would be a mistake to continue doing those operations because uh, there's an alternative even for counterterrorism, which is number one, to recognize that we've massively inflated the threat of terrorism and we don't need to do uh, endless drone strikes to suppress it. And number two, to again, realize that there's a government in Afghanistan that even if you don't like it, has a return address and can be coerced and cajoled and bribed and threatened into doing the counterterrorism stuff we want them to do. And I think that, you know, people are, are too cynical or uh, kind of realist in a phony way about uh, our ability to drag people uh, like the Taliban into cooperating with us again, because, you know, we make it in their self-interest to do uh, counterterrorism. So uh, I hope that we can we can proceed that way and not, you know, kind of keep a, a drone base in, in Uzbekistan or something uh, or just use, you know, bases further afield like Diego Garcia and pay a bunch of money to refuel the drones and, you know, blow people up without a lot of uh, intelligence support on the ground. You, you know, it, it goes to a larger point that the w- end of the war in Afghanistan, hopefully, is part of the end of the war on terror, the literal war on terror, which involves uh, a bunch of other smaller things uh, like drone strikes in Somalia and Yemen and uh, special operations forces in a whole bunch of different countries. And uh, the Biden administration, I think, uh, needs to be pressured, you know, not to keep troops in Syria for nebulous reasons and to continue uh, the momentum. And, and, you know, I think, as you noted before, one of the problems with the, if not the exit itself, then all the criticism criticism of the exit is that it may uh, dissuade the Biden administration, which already seemed uncertain from getting rid of all that other stuff or at least moving towards uh, dismantling it because it's all been a big, excessive uh, mistake, in my opinion. And that's something we could talk about more. It's not just the war in Afghanistan. It's the idea that we need to fight a more or less endless war on terror around the world that really needs to go along with the literal war in Afghanistan. Ben Friedman, thanks for talking today. Thanks, John. Good to talk to you.